Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Hey, gang, I highly recommend an essay that was included in today's newsletter. It remains posted at my website at Smirconish.com under the headline, The Gaza Ceasefire is a Major Military Victory for Hamas. It comes from Bloomberg. I'll quote one short graph. Delays always favor weaker defenders in a military conflict. While Israel may benefit to some degree in the propaganda war globally, which it is losing badly, in a pure combat sense, these pauses are far more valuable to Hamas. The author, James Stavridis, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, retired U.S. Navy Admiral, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, Dean Emeritus of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Admiral, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. Please expand upon what I just read aloud. Why do you think a ceasefire is a military victory for Hamas? Yeah, I speak here again as a senior military officer. And oh, by the way, when I was a four-star admiral and Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I had a second job, which was uh, U.S.-Israeli military-to-military relations. So I've been to Israel dozens of times, and I know the quality of the Israeli Defense Force. And believe me, they want to get the hostages home. They don't want to cause collateral damage to civilians. But at the same time, they are keenly aware that what is happening at this minute during these ceasefires Uh, Hamas is rearming its troops. It is moving logistics to support them. It's moving command and control devices. And above all, uh, Hamas is using the time to reposition their troops in and around Gaza using this huge underground tunnel complex and preparing for the ongoing Israeli assault, meaning improvised explosive devices, sniper nests, Um, high-altitude stations from which they can shoot down on Israelis. So bottom line, militarily, a ceasefire is giving Hamas time to prepare for the Israeli attack, and it's going to cost Israeli lives of IDF soldiers. In the last hour of the program, just 30 minutes ago, I read aloud from a Times above-the-fold piece today under the headline, In West Bank, Trust in Hamas only deepens. And I framed a question for listeners. I, I, I wondered, should there have been hostage negotiations? We're all thrilled when we see these families reunited on the Israeli side of the ledger. There's a different side, however, where you've got Palestinian prisoners who are being released. Um, Hamas, you made reference in your essay in Bloomberg to Israel losing the propaganda war But is Hamas not thus far, despite 13,000 individuals dying, uh, coming out on top, getting what they wanted? So far, I think if you look at strategic objective, it favors Hamas. Uh, Number one, they have brought the entire Palestinian issue back to the table. It had gradually been dropping off even conversations in the Middle East. Number two, they have struck a psychological blow to the Israeli sense of self-confidence, both within Israel. Now there'll be doubts about their own military, their intelligence services, and in the broader region. When Iran watches a terrorist group 
kill 1,300 Israelis and rape and murder and torture them, um, it shows to Iran weakness on the part of Israel. And then third and finally, as you just alluded to, Michael, correctly, globally, broadly speaking, the, the world feels as though Israel has gone too far, has killed too many Palestinians, is not doing enough uh, to prevent collateral damage. All those are victories for Hamas. Okay, and I would add a fourth to it, which is that as you're trying to, uh, I remember you once using the word dismantle, as you're dismantling Hamas, if you're killing Hamas, Nevertheless, you've got one half of two million people who are in their teens or younger. Maybe they're not today Hamas, but they have they have older brothers and uncles and 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 so forth. They're going to grow up thinking what about Israel, whether you're calling them Hamas today or not. They're going to be problematic in the future. No, absolutely correct. One of the best books on this is called The Accidental Gorilla, as in a, a, a a terrorist, the accidental gorilla by David Kilcullen. And he makes the point that you can kill one gorilla, if you will, one terrorist, but that terrorist has parents and brothers and sisters and perhaps children. And every time you kill one, you create maybe many more, the accidental gorillas who perhaps would not have turned in that direction. So, yeah, I'd agree with you, Michael. That's a fourth way in which Hamas, in a, a kind of horrific way, by uh, absorbing the sacrifice of these uh, Palestinian terrorists, they're creating more terrorists in the wake of that. So, so far, I think you have to say Hamas is, uh, is, is gaining quite a bit of advantage in this war. So was there an alternative? I don't think there was. And, you know, life is full of terrible choices. And this was one for Israel, which is to say, um, after 1,300 Israelis had been brutally murdered and another 250 captured, um, it simply demands an enormous response. And sitting back and saying, oh, let's have a negotiation at that point, I think is impossible. But here's the good news, such as it is. The further we get away from October 7th, the more you can start to conceive of some kind of negotiation. But I'll tell you where Israel will come out on that. Um, they will insist upon the uh, decommissioning of that tunnel complex. It's got to be destroyed, flooded, exploded, however you want to do it. And then secondly, I think you might get Israelis to allow what's left of Hamas leadership to actually leave Gaza, to flee, to go to other countries. Um, that's what happened to the PLO, uh, Yasser Arafat's terrorist organization. They were allowed to depart the West Bank. You can sort of see that. But, hey, bottom line, Michael, uh, the Israelis are not at this moment in a mood for any negotiation other than that which brings hostages home. And I, I guess... I guess the world court of opinion would not have stood idly by if Israel decided they were not going to negotiate for the return of the hostages. You would have had American families. You would have had Israeli families, obviously, uh, a lot from Thailand. Uh, those families, everybody would have been going to their elected leaders and saying, what are you doing to bring home my loved one? And I, I don't think that the politicians could withstand the scrutiny that would have come from saying we're doing nothing. 
Correct. And uh, I think the Israelis have, uh, in, in the very broadest sense, taken the best course of action available to them, which was they had to respond. Um, they have caused some level of collateral damage among civilians, and that's tragic and terrible, and every innocent civilian life is a tragedy. But let's recall that Israel, if they had wanted to turn all of Gaza into a parking lot the day after and kill two million Gazans, they had the military capability to do that. How many thousands have died is a tragedy, and we don't, I don't think, have really accurate numbers. But Israel, in that sense, has been restrained. The comparison of what they could have done to what they actually did was restrained. And, and oh, by the way, believe me, if Hamas had had the ability to kill 7 million Jews on October 7th, they would have seized it. So any kind of false moral equivalency, my view, between uh, Israel and Hamas is unwarranted. And then finally, the Israelis have, in good faith, negotiated. They've allowed military pauses. And this brings us back to where we started. At, at a military disadvantage for them, for the Israelis, they have put the hostages and negotiating for them higher than their own best military course of action. So uh, I think Israel has made the best of some very terrible choices they faced on the 7th of October. Admiral, finally, I want to take advantage of, of you being a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and being here on a day that USA Today has published, uh, quote-unquote, exclusive maps that show U.S. counterterrorism efforts across the globe spanning 78 countries. And the gist of this is to say we have a global footprint with regard to our military. What would you say to the, the Rand Paul school of thought that says every time we establish another beachhead, all we're doing is asking for trouble and involving ourselves in places we ought not to be? I'd start by saying, you know, we tried that approach. We brought everybody home. We had no bases. When was that? Michael, that was in uh, 1918, at the end of the First World War. We simply pulled everything back. We entered a period of isolationism, and we said to ourselves, hey, the world, that's eh, not that important. We can handle everything we need right here in the U.S. Well, how'd that work out? What happened was fascism rose in Europe, uh, a militaristic uh, group of Japanese officers took over Japan uh, in the name of the emperor, and you end up in the Second World War. You can drop a plumb line from those decisions. So point one is um, that global footprint, my view, uh, actually helps with stability. Um, point two would be we need to remember, just as Israel is grappling with October 7th post period today, we need to remember what it was like in America after 9-11. We said we were going to go around the world and eradicate terrorism. That's what led to a lot of this. So let's conclude with this. Your show is all about let's meet in the middle. There, in my view, there is a good case to be made for a group of strategic bases and military operations and training. But maybe we went a bit too far after 9-11, and maybe some of that footprint can be reduced. But that's a big difference than saying just bring everybody home. Down that path lies strategic failure for a global nation like the United States.
Okay, one follow-up, because I smell poll question here. Would would the following be an appropriate framing? And I'll, I'll say, you know, inspired by Admiral Stavridis, a question, something along the lines of, does our global footprint make the U.S. more or less safe? First of all, is that a fair articulation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we will end up on that poll. I'll make a fearless prediction. 65% will agree. 65% will agree. 35% will disagree. Let's see agree. how it comes out. Ag- agree saying, yes, it makes us more safe. Yes, I believe that. Okay. Well, you're, you're voter number one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Admiral, thank you so much. Look forward to our next conversation. We really appreciate you. You and me both. Thanks so much. Maybe next time we can talk about Dr. Henry Kissinger. Oh, will you give give me 45 seconds? I'd love to hear it. Um, I think it's a mixed picture. But what he brought to the table for us was an opening to China. He moved the needle on peace in the Middle East. And uh, I think in many ways, he strengthened the transatlantic alliance. There are certainly periods in his life where he made decisions that, in retrospect, bombing of Cambodia, activities in Latin America and undermining democracies that he'll have to carry as a legacy, but broadly speaking, uh, a giant in the world of diplomacy. At Stavridis, J, AdmiralStav.com. Thank you, Admiral. Thanks. Always great, Michael. Bye-bye. Admiral James Stavridis, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. The Michael Smirconish Program. Listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and anytime on the Sirius XM app. Okay, couple of things here. One, hold that for tomorrow. Hold that for tomorrow. And I want, I'm telling you, that's the default poll question. The default poll question that I just reviewed with him. You have to look at this. USA Today presentation. It's very visual. But the gist of it is that we're all over the place. We are all over the place. And you heard what the Admiral said. We, we tried isolation. That didn't work. I'm going to save that for tomorrow. I want to go back to his four points relative to Israel now. Should there have been hostage negotiations? I mean, you, you heard him say... You know, viewed from a certain perspective, this is not going so well, meaning Hamas is getting, notwithstanding the 13,000 have died, I don't think they care. Or I think maybe they care and they were prepared to accept those losses. But, you know, the, the it's funny because I don't think he was tuned into what we were discussing before his arrival, and yet he hit some of the exact same themes. The conversation that has now been elevated about the quote-unquote plight of the Palestinians. There's no doubt there is a dialogue taking place around the world right now that did not exist on 10-6. Israeli self-doubt about their security capacity. Uh, what was third on his list? The, the court of public opinion, you know, wondering now that maybe Israel has gone too far. And four, and I'm going to get that book, The Accidental Gorilla, the, the idea now, which, which I raised, of a whole new generation or two of future terrorists. So from the Hamas perspective, they've started a conversation that was paramount. That was the objective. You know, the, the 1,200 Israelis slaughtered, I think, were the means to get to an objective of having a conversation about, about a two- or even one-state solution. Theirs, not Israel's. 
And the last thing I'll say about this, what, what got me started down this road, I kind of picked up a column midstream. I didn't tell you how it began. And this is a, this is a good framing. This is a dateline of the West Bank. The two cousins spotted each other on the bus leaving the prison as shocked to see the other as they were by their sudden freedom. Pinch me, said Anwar Ada, 18 years old, to his younger cousin. I need to know if this is a dream. Then, early Sunday morning, the bus pulled out of the Ofer prison in the West Bank and into a throng of cheering Palestinians. Before the cousins' feet could touch the ground, they were hoisted into the air, carried through the streets of Ramallah, surrounded by people waving Palestinian and Hamas flags, reviving their motor- revving pardon me, their motorcycle engines, and whistling in excitement. Quote, this is thanks to the resistance in Gaza, Anwar said hours later from his family's home on the outskirts of the city. Anwar and his cousin, Murad Atta, 17, among the 180 Palestinian teenagers and women freed from Israeli prisons in recent days, the largest such release of prisoners and detainees in more than a decade. Their freedom, part of a deal in which the Palestinians were traded for 81 hostages, many of them children, captured during the Hamas-led terrorist attack in Israel on October 7. The deal also included a temporary ceasefire in the war on Gaza, which has killed more than 13,000 people. And then finally, Israel's bombardment of Gaza and the elation of the prisoners' release have deepened support for Hamas in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority had administered cities and towns for more than two decades. I mean, that's the net effect of where we are 50 days on. It's now Hamas, you know, obviously a a lot of their leadership being targeted, killed by the Israelis, but the sentiment is with them. And then I said to the Admiral, well, okay, what was the alternative? Well, there really wasn't one. There really wasn't one. Thoughts on that? Uh, Mike, greetings to you in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for your patience. What did you want to say? Yes. Um, well, first of all, God love Admiral Severinus. He's a great get for your show, and we're lucky to have him. Um, I want to discuss the legacy of uh, Henry Kissinger. Um, you know, history will have a love-hate relationship with him, Um I have a personal perspective. Uh, I'm the son of a pilot that was uh, shot down in, in uh, Vietnam, uh, spent six years in uh, the Hanoi Hilton. Your son um, did? No, I'm the son of a, of a pilot. Uh, my father was shot down. And, and spent in, six, in, years, uh, six years where, where John McCain was also imprisoned. Yeah, in fact, they were in the same compound uh, shortly, they moved them around. Um, they were both high ranking. That's remarkable. And, um, did your father? Did your father come home from that experience? Uh, luckily, he did. The story has a happy ending. Um, he came home, and um, uh, he had a very successful afterlife, so to speak. Uh, he was in the oil business. He uh, he was a racetrack rat. Uh, he owned uh, thoroughbreds. Uh, he, he he was a remarkable man. Uh, we did lose him two years ago at uh, ninety four. Tell so, me, tell uh, me your tell yeah. me your dad's age. I I want to read about him. Or pardon me, his name. Uh, last name was Larson. Um, L i r s o n. 
Colonel Gordon Swede Larson. All right. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna read about him later. Tell me what you most wanted to say about Kissinger. Well, again, this is from my perspective um, of my dad being there, and he's given credit for helping to bring the war to an end. Um, but I, it's really not that simple. Um, he, um, Mike Barnacle, uh, this morning said uh, that made a great point that. Uh, he and the North Vietnamese negotiator uh, spent 11 months dickering over the size and the configuration of the uh, negotiating table. Um, during that time, 20,000 uh, young men died in rice paddies in, in Vietnam. And then my dad, of course, sat there um, for that time uh, while they, I, you know, I just don't think that, he is the, um, you know, the hero and, um, you know, the, the, I think he was self-serving. I think he was egotistical. And I, I believe that, you know, I'll remember him for being that more than, than being this, this great negotiator. So I'm a little distracted because I'm, I'm reading uh, your father's first of two Silver Star citations. Lieutenant Colonel Gordon A. Larson distinguished himself by gallantry in connection with military operations against an opposing armed force as an F-105 aircraft commander over North Vietnam on 11 March 1967. On this date, Colonel Larson, while leading the largest single force of F-105s ever assembled, dealt severe damage to the largest steel plant in North Vietnam He led his large force through marginal weather conditions and through the most dense hostile fire ever encountered by pilots of this force. By his gallantry and devotion to duty, he reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. By the way, I got to say, your your father, what what a handsome guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Real handsome. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, He did okay. And and thank you for thank you for reading that. I appreciate it. Uh, He um, yeah, he was special. I can tell. I can tell. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, your, your calling in and, and, and sharing that. Uh, more phone calls in, in just a moment. Re- read up on that, gang. Gordon A. Swede Larson. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. The Michael Smirconish Program. Listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and anytime on the Sirius XM app. Anthony is driving through Connecticut, a junior military officer, with some thoughts about what Admiral Stavridis had to say. I'm all ears, Anthony. Thank you for your phone call. Hey, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to give you a little bit of flattery before I get started. I've been listening to you since you first came to Sirius XM and bumped Tim Farley to the six o'clock hour and you're the main reason i keep my subscription so oh, that's i appreciate nice. your program yeah thank you i i hope tim is doing well in maine i i haven't uh, heard him recently but what a talented guy he is yeah he was great um but what i wanted to say about uh, admiral stavridis uh, he's obviously got a lot more experience and, and wisdom than i have but i see two other options for israel that haven't really been talked about and, and he he talked about one of them quickly and dismissed it which is essentially doing nothing um, and that's my biggest reason. These terrorist organizations, they attack us. 9-11, October 7th, they attack us only hoping to get these rises out of us. And uh, the emotions play into these decisions to, you know, go in and 
uh, you know, go into Afghanistan with all that we did, and it caused that quagmire, uh, and Israel's seeing it right now. And while it's politically unpopular, and the defense minister and maybe the prime minister should have apologized and even resigned for the security failure of letting it happen in the first place, I think sitting back, doing nothing, and getting the sympathy for Israel and getting the Gulf states and the other Arab states to but Anthony, negotiate can on I, their behalf I, for the may I, interrupt, may I interrupt and say, wind yeah. the clock back to 2001 when it was the United States. There's no way we would have stood idly by if George W. Bush hadn't done something. In the end, we used a shotgun when we should have used a sniper rifle. But I, I just think that that's not realistic. I mean, as you've heard me say before, maybe any suburban soccer mom would have strangled bin Laden with her bare hands if given the chance. We were at that level of a fever pitch. And I do agree with you, Michael. And that kind of leads me into my second option is is using that sniper rifle. I think Israel knew that they were going to go in. They waited almost a full week before they were going in. And it's it's been kind of a slow ground game. I think if they had gone in, punched really quick and really hard and got back out. Um, the casualties may have even been a little bit higher, but the slow bleed of the news yeah. cycle right. and allowing the Palestinian fervor to build up has just, it's made the, the political public opinion against them so much more. Oh, I agree. I mean, I agree with that. If there, if there could have been a more immediate targeted approach I don't know because I, I'm, you know, naive. I don't have any expertise. I don't know how practical that is to, to think. Uh, but, I mean, Admiral Stavridis, a former Supreme Allied commander of NATO, essentially, thank you, Anthony, for your own service, essentially saying, like, uh, you know, Hamas is, is winning in the court of public opinion. Uh, and then that Times piece that I was quoting from, it's distressing. David, you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Greetings. What did you most want to say? Well, uh, I was a high school uh, football official, and I was assigned to a football game in Dearborn, Michigan on a Friday afternoon, and I was to work at the game at night in Wayne, and my first crew was to drop me off on the expressway, and the second crew was to pick me up and take me to the Wayne game. And uh, the first game went into overtime, and so I was late getting back, and the crew had to leave to go to the Wayne game. So when I got dropped off on the expressway, I had no ride to the Wayne game. Now I'm in my official uniform. <laughs> and so uh, I, well, my only option was to go down on the expressway and start hitchhiking. And fortunately, I was picked up by this nice couple, and uh, they agreed to take me to Wayne. Now the unfortunate thing because I had never been to Wayne, and I didn't know where I was to go. Oh, but uh, they knew, and they took me to the game, dropped me off. I uh, went into the field, and it was just in time for the toss and the kickoff. And I made it. I, I love that story. I love it. I, and, and, and what a great question. Would you pick up a referee? I would. Well, uh, you know, you, I would. David, I David you... You remind me uh, you remind me of my dad in that my dad for many, many years was a football official, loved it. He would officiate Friday night high school football games and Saturday he would be doing a college game somewhere. I mean, all the weekends were usually for him a twofer, never just one game. Well, I eventually got into college 
in the Mid-American Conference, and uh, I was not allowed to work high school uh, on Friday night anymore. Yeah. But I worked my way through college uh, working football. Uh, I do JV on Thursday, uh, sure. varsity, like yep. two games on Friday and <laughs> maybe uh, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, David. I appreciate your story. Makes makes me uh, think of a lot of funny memories uh, and a lot of good stories I'd love to tell. In the, in the Billy Kilmer era, my dad got the call to do an Eagles preseason scrimmage. I can't even say preseason game. And my brother and I, and I would have been, I would have been no more than 10 or 12 at the time, we ran the chains. Can you imagine? Like two kids, we're running the chains and my dad is doing the Eagles Redskins uh, scrimmage. This was in the uh, in the era when they were they were still at uh, Albright. Oh my God, Albright! Hear more of Michael Smirconish on SiriusXM's POTUS Channel One Twenty Four live weekdays from nine a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for independent minds.